Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everybody. On this edition of 30 with Murdy, we talk with a basketball legend about his baseball roots. Pat Williams announced his retirement from the Orlando Magic this month. Williams is one of the all-time characters and genuine people in the sports world. His official title is co-founder, senior vice president of the Magic, the team he helped build as an expansion franchise more than 30 years ago. But before he founded and built the Shaq and Penny Magic that went to the NBA Finals in 1995, before he became the GM of the Sixers, who brought Dr. J and Moses Malone together for a championship in 1983, long before he was all that, Pat Williams was in baseball. This week, I spoke to Pat about his early love of baseball, his minor league career as a catcher in the Phillies organization, where he caught a teenage future Hall of Famer. That naturally led to a front office career and then somehow led him to the NBA. How? Well, let's take a listen and find out how Pat Williams became one of the most interesting and entertaining men in all of sports. I spoke to the 79-year-old Pat Williams from his office in Orlando, and we started at the beginning, how a 10-year-old boy in Philadelphia fell in love with the Phillies Whiz Kids, who won the National League pennant in 1950 with Hall of Famers Richie Ashburn and Robin Roberts. No question about it, Sweeney. And I had one huge, huge break in life. Uh, my classmate and later my teammate and my friend for 75 years uh, is Rolly Carpenter, uh, whose father, Bob Carpenter, was the owner of the Phillies in that era and beyond. Sure. So, so I had the wonderful break, the wonderful opportunity of going up to Shy Park on, on Sunday morning with the Carpenters in, in Mr. Carpenter's car and spending the day there and uh, uh, sitting with my, my friend Rooley. And uh, uh, that, that went on for years. We would go to spring training together in Clearwater around the Phillies. So that group, uh, the Wiz Kids, were a huge, huge part of my life. I'd fallen in love with baseball when I was seven. Uh, I couldn't wait to go to Shy Park, starting at age seven, to see the A's and the Phillies, who were both in town then. Yeah. And I, I had a mad love affair, Sweeney, with baseball uh, that continues to this day. So I, I find it kind of interesting then that when you become a professional baseball player, the manager of the team is the catcher from the Whiz Kids, Andy Semenik, and you're a catcher. He's your manager. That must have been outrageous. Wasn't that something? You know, I, uh, uh, I loved Andy Simonek. Uh, growing up, he wore number 21, uh, built like a rock. And he was behind the plate uh, during that whole era from 47, I think 52, they traded him to Cincinnati. Uh, but I loved Andy Simonek. And, uh, and then uh, uh, the Phillies signed me in June of 62. I, I head to Miami, and you're right, the manager... Of the Miami Marlins is none other than Andy Semenek. And the two years that I played, 1962 and then again in 63, uh, Andy was the manager both years. Then interesting footnote, Sweeney, after I got here to Orlando, 
uh, Andy by then had retired. He lived in Melbourne, mm-hmm. Florida, right down the road, and he was very much involved with the baseball program at Florida Tech. He took a real interest there. And I would see Andy periodically. He would come over to a Magic game, or he would come over. We had lunch a time or two. And wow. so that was quite, quite a thrill when you think about it, that this uh, baseball hero, who I sat in the upper deck on the third base side, uh, endless number of times looking down, and there was Andy as a player, and there he was across the lunch table from me. I find going back a few steps from that, I'll come back to Miami time, but when you ended up going to Wake Forest and played baseball there, but that there was some really elite athletes uh, and sports personalities at Wake Forest at that time. Billy Packer is on the basketball team. Norm Sneed, who plays quarterback in the NFL, is is on the football team. And the sports director, actually, I take this back, he succeeded you as sports director at WFDD, was the future general manager of the Colts and the Giants, Ernie Accorsi. That was some group you had there. Yeah, think about that for a minute. You know, we had, that was the most successful basketball run Wake's ever had. Billy Packer was the point guard. Lenny Chappell, who had a long career in the NBA, he was the big man up front. Uh, the colorful Bones McKinney was the coach. <laughs> yeah. And yes, uh, Norm Sneed uh, had a marvelous career there. Uh, when I was a senior, Sweeney, the freshman football player was none other than Brian Piccolo. Wow. Who went on and had a, a wonderful career at Wake, ended up with the, with the Bears. Uh, I was reunited with him when I uh, came to the Bulls as the GM. Um, John Makovic, John John longtime college and pro coach. He was the quarterback in the Brian Piccolo era. So, yes, there were some very, very interesting personalities. And and over the years, the the most uh, well-known athletes to come through Wake Forest were the golfers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, starting way back with Arnold Palmer, and then there was a long succession of of, uh, well-known professional golfers who came through Wake. So, and of course, my dear friend Ernie, um, how how close we are and have remained close. He's one of the most interesting people on the planet, and uh, that relationship started when we were at Wake Forest. I want to know what it was like for you as as the sports director of the campus radio station there. Were you, was your aspiration to get into uh, play-by-play, like by some or some of the guys you grew up listening to? Well, Sweeney, I had two great interests as I was coming along at that point, being a ball player slash baseball front office and broadcasting. And so I had my own radio show uh, on the Wake Forest Station, uh, primarily uh, built around interviews. I had I had an old woolen sack tape recorder, and I would hustle out. Ted Williams was over in Greensboro. Wow. Roger Mar- Roger Maris and Harmon Killebrew and Jim Gentile came to the ballpark in Winston Salem for a home run hitting contest, or. Um, uh, Bill Sharman came down to speak. Uh, Arnold Palmer came down to speak. Dr. Billy Graham came. I mean, wow. I was running, running all over the place with my wallet sack to put on my radio show. And then uh, my senior year, I did the play-by-play for the Lake Forest freshman schedule. So, yes, I... Um, and then when I went to Indiana for graduate school... Uh, the IU Sports Network was the broadcaster were, were, were college students. Uh, Dick Enberg 
just before us, and I teamed up with John Gordon, the longtime Minnesota Twins yeah, voice. Yeah, sure. And we broadcast those two years uh, Indiana football and basketball. So yes, I I definitely had aspirations uh, in the broadcasting field, but. Uh, my um, baseball career moved along, and then that led to basketball, and I decided I'd rather be helping to make the news than reporting it. I, I find, uh, I, I, you know, the, the connections you have through all your various stops, that's always the fun part to me about talking to somebody who's been in the business as long as you have. And when I, I you know, the 1962 Miami Marlins had a 19-year-old right-hander named Ferguson Jenkins who ended up going to the Hall of Fame. And you're a catcher. So did you end up catching Fergie Jenkins at all that year? Well, sweetie, I did. In fact, whenever I have been with Fergie, uh, he introduces me. Here's Pat Williams, my first catcher in pro ball. <laughs> well, it, it turned out that that summer, uh, you know, I was the backup catcher to an old Dodger uh, farmhand named Dick Teed. And I... Um, but, but it seemed that every night I caught, Fergie was the pitcher. Maybe the reason was he was so easy to catch. <laughs> I mean, he was always, always around the plate. He was always on the black part of the plate. Uh, I mean, he was just a joy to catch. But even a, a bigger joy, Sweeney, was to be around Fergie. He just had a wonderful temperament. Uh, he had a, a, a great way with people. Still does. And uh, never got too rattled, you know. Just there was a certain calmness to Fergie, but also a uh, a great competitive nature. So uh, it's always nice to run into him, and he's always been very, very kind and gracious to me. You know, I run into another one of your former teammates quite often. I didn't know he was a former teammate of yours until until I just looked it up. Hank Allen, who's known as, as Dick Allen's brother. Hank is a scout, uh, and I see him quite frequently in Baltimore. He works with the Astros now, uh, so he's got himself a World Series ring from that uh, run a couple of years ago. But he was a very talented ball player himself, and you were teammates with him at a young age. Well, he, uh, I was with him in 1963 uh, when I came back to the Marlins for a second season. By the way, uh, one of our outfielders in 1962... Uh, was a young 18-year-older by the name of Alex Johnson. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, who, who went on and had a uh, quite a career in Major League Baseball, uh, you know, a troubled career at times. But uh, Alex was just a, a strong, powerful young outfielder. You knew uh, that he was going to uh, get to the big leagues. But in 63, I came, and there's Hank Allen, you know, a Philly farmhand. Uh, the older brother of Dick Allen, the older brother of Ron Allen, all three of them got to the big leagues. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Hank was a great guy, and uh, I, I, I ran into him not long ago down here. His hair is snow white. Yeah. I, I had trouble recognizing him. <laughs> but, but we were teammates that year of 63, and Hank... Um, Hank was terrific. I mean, there was a maturity about him. He was a really good ball player. And he kept going and, and got to the big leagues and, and carved out a pretty good career for himself. You know, Pat, the wonderful thing about 2019 is that, you know, you can find statistics on just about anything. And, you know, I, I, I liked looking up your batting numbers. You played 51 games over two years with Miami in the Florida State League. 
You hit 255, but your on base, which is what you look at these days, was 387. You actually walked more times than you struck out. You had a really good idea at the plate at that young age. Well, my first year uh, that I was down there, uh, I hit 295. And I think the Phillies probably up in Philadelphia looked at that and said, oh my, what do we have here? Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a hitting catcher. <laughs> well, you know, I I think Andy picked his spots for me, and um, and, and you know, I, I fit in. Uh, I had one big game in in Tampa. I went four for five, sweetie, that night, and that had a lot to do with that batting average. Uh, three singles and a double. Uh, Andy had stuck me out in left field, which I kind of butchered. But nevertheless, uh, after that game, I thought. Uh, boy, I can I can hit professional pitching. I'm ready for the big show. You know, when, when are they going to call me up? But uh, that was a big night for me. When the season ended, 295 looked good on the records up in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, so the I... next year, however, I was in grad school, Sweeney. I was getting my master's degree at Indiana University, and I told the Phillies I've got to get this spring semester in. And they, they they approved that. So I didn't report until after school was out, which was sometime on in May. In retrospect, you know, a, a spring training that year and, and going through the early stages probably would have been extremely beneficial. Mm -hmm. But um, getting that master's was also important. I had It was a tough decision I had to make. And uh, I elected to go on and finish and report to the Phillies right after that, which was not the worst case, but I had missed spring training in March and the start of the season in April and half the month of May. So I, I was definitely behind. Well, your, your Masters, I guess, is what led you to that next spot because those are your only two years in pro ball. How did that transition happen where they sent you from being a catcher in the Florida State League to being the general manager in Spartanburg You know, shortly after that? Well, there was an intermediary stop back in Miami in the front office in 1964. And, you know, I finished up my master's work completely in the spring of 64, finished my broadcasting, reported in March back to the Marlins. The general manager was a fascinating character named Bill Durney. And uh, he uh, took me under his wing for that year, uh, invested in me. He was an old baseball veteran, been around a long time knew the game inside out and he passed all that on to me I think he got a great kick out of uh, having a student and uh, he turned me loose in Miami gave me a lot of freedom and uh, the idea was to see at the end of this year does Williams have a future in, in this field well, mm. as it turns out uh, Bill Derny turned in good reports and then that winner uh, the Spartanburg job was open as the GM. Uh, I went with Bill Dirty's blessing. The Phillies sent me there uh, in February of 1965. I was 24 years old and uh, and and thrown in, you know, um, cold turkey. You know, I had that one year of training in Miami in '64, a couple of years as a player, and here I am in Spartanburg, ready to take over my own team. So, and 20-year-old Larry Boa, I think, is the shortstop on that team. What like, what was that experience like at 24, trying to run a team, a professional team? Well, uh, I was very fortunate in a, in a couple of ways. The owner of the team 
was a man named R.E. Littlejohn. They called him Mr. R.E. I just called him Coach. <laughs> uh, he was in the oil transportation business. He knew baseball. He knew people. He knew life. And he was uh, always, always investing in me, teaching me, uh, showing me the way. I could not have functioned without him. I, I'm still living with many of his principles today. Hmm. Such as Sweeney. The other big, break, other big break was uh, my relationship with Bill Veck. Uh, I had read his book in 1962, Veck is in Wreck. That had a huge, huge impact on me. And through that, I was able to go visit Bill, and he befriended me. Where did you end up meeting him? Well, I went to his home, and I, I lived in Wilmington, Delaware, at the end of the '62 season. Uh, through Bill Durney's help, I ended up going to visit him at his place in Easton, Maryland, about a two-hour drive. And, and Bill greeted me. Uh, I mean, I was nervous. Who wouldn't be? But Bill was so gracious and greeted me so warmly. Gosh, I would have been happy with 20 minutes with him. <laughs> but, uh, but five hours later, I left. Um, and from that point on, uh, Bill had a took an interest in me and he um, uh, he invested in me and he taught me and whenever I needed help I would be on the phone with him uh, never did he say I'm busy or stop calling me I mean he just opened his arms wide to me and that was a huge break but you, you asked a little bit earlier uh, sweetie about the impact in Spartanburg of Mr. Littlejohn yes what, what lessons I'm still learning today. Um, uh, a few things like control those things over which you have control and let go of everything else. I wanted to control the weather. <laughs> I wanted to control what the Phillies did with these ball players. Yeah. Uh, you have no control as the local operator. And uh, Mr. Littlejohn saw this. He saw that I was just wearing myself out. And he told me, control how hot the hot dogs are and how clean the ladies' room is and how friendly your staff is. You know, you, you can control all that. So he also uh, was very, very big on be patient. And I was the most impatient young sports guy you've ever met. I want everything to, to happen now. I wanted to be running the Yankees when I was 25. <laughs> I, I wanted to go be, be the head guy at the Dodgers. And, and that led to another principle. You've got to have experience. Yeah. He kept preaching. He said, you've got to learn this business from the ground up. You've got to know how all the facets down here work. He said, if you get to the big leagues and you don't have experience, he said, you, you could crumble. And um, those, are, those are just a few things he shared with me, which I now am passing on to the next generation. You know, Pat, I, I, it's funny that you say that because you, your career jumps track from baseball right to basketball. And... When you say experience, you know, how do you become an NBA general manager when your experience has been running a minor league baseball team? Good question, sweetie. I <laughs> asked myself that. I was, uh, I was in my fourth year in Spartanburg. Um, you know, 
my my uh, goals. Everything was in the world of baseball. I walked into the office one day, and there was a pink slip to return a call to a Jack Ramsey in Inglewood, California. And I thought, Jack Ramsey? I mean, he's a former coach at St. Joe's, basketball mm-hmm. coach, the GM of the 76ers. What in the world is this about? Well, I returned the call. He told me he was in Inglewood, uh, California, trading Will Chamberlain of the Lakers. And that he was going to also be, take over the coaching duties of the Sixers in addition uh, to his GM job. And he needed somebody to run the front office because he was going to be a full-time coach. And he wanted to talk to me. Well, I'd never met him. He'd never met me. I once asked him, I said, what What prompted you to call me? And all he said was there was a lot more known about you in Philadelphia than you might have thought. Well, I traced that back because several times during my years in Spartanburg, a Philadelphia columnist would come down uh, to do an article on what we were doing and what the young players were doing. That happened several times, so I think that's what he meant. Meant. So anyway, I, I hooked up with Dr. Jagger. It was the first time, uh, uh, Sweeney, I've ever I had an opportunity to get affiliated with a, with a major league franchise in any sport. It was the first time I, I, I never had a chance to make any money. Wow. You know, in Spartanburg, I think the highest I got was 800 a month, and that was during the season only. Might have been a bonus at the end of the year if the team did well. So, so uh, Jack offered me a three-year deal at twenty thousand a year. Wow, big money! Yeah. <laughs> and, if, and if you did the math over three years, that was sixty thousand dollars. <laughs> I think so it went. Like, it probably went a long way in nineteen sixty-seven. Uh, well, this was six. When was this? Was sixty-eight. Um, sixty-eight. Anyway, the, the, there I was, and. Uh, uh, the, the, the Spartanburg season ended. I got in my car, drove to Philly, met with Jack. The next day, he went to training camp. Wow. Gave, me, gave, me, gave me the keys to the office, and there I was. Um, the two secretaries, uh, I was the fourth full-time employee, and that, that was it. That was the franchise. There was a picture that got posted the other day, and it, it reminded me, it was, it was basically it was the anniversary, this date in 1980, they said, was Dr. J going baseline against the Lakers. Now, you were, you were uh, with the Sixers at the time. This is 1980 NBA Finals, and the NBA Finals were not nearly as big a, a deal as they, as they are today. It wasn't even live on TV. But my question to you, Pat, is where were you sitting, standing, whatever you were doing, when Doc went baseline on the Lakers? Well, back in those days, I would have been, the press box was kind of at the intermediary level, and that's where I would be. Uh, never sad, I'd be standing there, um, you know, kind of halfway up. Um, so that's where I was. I had a good view of it. Uh, back in those days, they didn't have replay up on your scoreboard. Yeah. Uh, so we, we probably didn't see the replay at all. You just kind of had to remember what you had seen. Uh, of course, they, they got it, and now they, they show it all the time. Uh, but back then, you, if, you, if you had turned your head, for example, if you were looking at your, your program, uh, you would have missed it. But uh, that was an unbelievable moment in NBA history, that move by Doc. He, had, he never quite knew what he was going to do next. Was, it, was, uh, there a, was there a wow moment in the press box or in the stadium when it happened? Oh, oh, without question. I think people were just flabbergasted. Mm. 
I, I think probably they weren't really sure of what they'd seen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, you, 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 just like uh, the other day when you, Kawhi Leonard hit that shot that was just beyond description. Mm -hmm. uh, when he made it and shot it, uh, you didn't really appreciate what he'd done. But then when they showed it over and over and over and over and over again, then you be it began to sink in. Uh, back in that era, you know, that wasn't possible. Wow. It's, you know, it reminds me of something that Roger Angel, a great writer, said at his, uh, at his Hall of Fame in, uh, induction speech. He said, you know, the mind's eye. He was talking about how y you saw something in the mind's eye uh, and it was gone. And it was up to you and your imagination to, to recreate those all the time. Now you see, the, like you said, you see the highlight a hundred times before you go to bed. It's, it's, a, it's just a different time, I guess, in, in, what we're, in how we view sports. Oh, I think that's so true. Um, I, I think that's probably the beauty of sports, the beauty of baseball. Uh, in my mind's eye, uh, I can see everything at, at Shy Park that I saw when I was seven. <laughs> uh, I can still see them. Uh, I can still see those little tractors uh, roaming around the infield in a figure eight loop uh, with that, uh, that uh, mat behind it. Smoothing out the dirt, and then I can still see those guys, those grass guys, with that with that big uh, hose, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, settling the dust. Mm -hmm. And and suddenly that dirt it becomes dark, dark brown after the water hits it. <laughs> yeah. And then and then the other group comes out with their um, their um, forms, those wooden forms. And there's, there's a guy with his push, little pusher with all the white dust in it, or the white paint. Uh, beautiful, beautiful. And then, they, then, they, then the guy puts in the, the batting box, the catcher's box. And there it sits in all its beauty. And it's full color, which it didn't used to be uh, on television back then. Full color in, in person was something. Yes, well, the first time I saw that, first of all, it was before the first game, and then between games, they do it all over again. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I was just, I, I saw that, and I said, that's seven years old. I said, that's the be most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Pat, you, you still have never lost your love for baseball. Um, I worked at uh, some Yankee fantasy camps a few years ago, and there you are putting catcher's gear on at, I don't know, you were 70 years old probably, and you're putting catcher's gear on and getting behind the plate for these games. What what on earth propels you to do that? Well, Sweeney, for, I, I always wanted to be a big league catcher. Uh, never made it. But uh, when I moved to Florida in uh, – 1986, I was 46, so always took good care of myself. I was in good shape. And these fantasy camps were cranking up all over Florida. Orlando, Clearwater, uh, Tampa. Uh, the Mets had one. The Braves had one. And n none of the old guys really wanted to catch. <laughs> and, uh, but I did. And so uh, I just roamed all over Florida during the winter. Um, you know, Detroit and uh, Boston. I went everywhere. But my two favorites were the Phillies in Clearwater and the Yankees in Tampa. Uh, there was something special about uh, going into that Yankee locker room mm -hmm. and, and dressing in the same quarters with Hector Lopez. Yeah. 
Tommy John yeah. and um, Paul Blair. Yeah. A, a very bald Oscar Gamble. Yep. And uh, and on and on, and it, it just was. To me, it was absolutely thrilling. And then going having a Yankee uniform on and uh, and, and trotting out there to put on the tools of ignorance and and catch all day. I uh, didn't want to come out. Mm-hmm. If, if, if some of the young one came along, well, I would concede and let him move in there, but I didn't want to move in there too long. Um, and then the Phillies, the same thing. They had they had a very nice fantasy program on that final Sunday. The Yankees had their final day on Saturday. So I was able to do the Yankees on Saturday, go over to Clearwater and do the Phillies on Sunday, and I did that for numbers of years. Finally, uh, at the age of 70, so I did it from my late 40s until 70. Okay. And the only thing that knocked me out was when I was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the uh, the doctor, the oncologist found a cancer called multiple myeloma, which took the life, by the way, of Mel Stottlemyre. Yes, yes. And um, and um, other others, you know, I passed away as well. But um, Mel battled it for years. Anyway, at that point, uh, it, 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 I, I just couldn't do it anymore. So, uh, but I've got I've got wonderful memories and some wonderful friendships, sweetie, from those days. How's your health nowadays, Pat? Good, thank you. I see I see the oncologist maybe I guess three times a year. And they they check my blood, check my blood numbers, and um, the reports have all been very positive. He keeps telling me that uh, he doesn't see anything there that's alarming. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel good, and I'm able to keep my full schedule. I still have more books to write. (laughs) Uh, We have 18 grandkids we're looking after, and I've got a list of projects that I really want to get done while while my brain is still sharp, and I've got my... Uh, recall and um, you know I'm able to uh, able to do all the things I like to do I want to get all that done you know before my last breath and you still have a daily connection to baseball your son Bobby works with the Angels as a pro scout he was a manager in the national system for a few years um, the baseball uh, uh, blood got in his blood too huh that's true Sweeney he's a baseball kid uh, I remember when we were in Philadelphia, Bobby was as young, maybe as three. <laughs> so he grew up around, excuse me, around the ballpark, loved it. Uh, he was drafted out of high school by the Orioles, went to Rollins here, a good baseball school. Yeah. He was there for four years. Uh, he knew what he wanted to do with his life. He got his master's degree at uh, Georgia Southern. Jim Bowden, uh, he needed an internship, and Jim gave it to him as a 22-year, 23-year-old coach, mind you, in the Reds' farm system. Unheard of. He, he was there uh, under Russ Nixon, the manager, mm-hmm. and, and that's how it started. He spent five years as a coach in the Reds' system, then seven years in the um, national system. He managed for four years. He was the farm director for three and he's in his eighth year as a pro scout for the Angels. Uh, his 20th year overall in pro ball, and uh, uh, Bobby is living right smack dab in the center of his talent, intersecting with his passion. <laughs> uh, and he's living right in the middle of that intersection and doing exactly what he loves to do. 
How many books have you written now, Pat? You mentioned more books to write. Uh, book number 110, Sweeney, came out this spring. Ooh. It's a book called Character Carved in Stone, and it's about the 12 benches at Trophy Point on the campus at West Point. Mm. And and the 12 words carved into those stone benches, uh, I saw that a few years ago, and I said, boy, this is an interesting-looking site, and, and uh, we investigated it, we studied how this all came about, what these 12 words meant, and how they became a part of the West Point makeup. And uh, that book has come out fairly recently. Um, it's done quite well. Mike Krzyzewski wrote the foreword huh. as, a, as, a, as a West Point grad. And uh, that's my latest. The next one will be out in October. It's called Lead Like Walt. Okay. And, and we take a look at Walt Disney through the narrow focus of leadership. Very interesting. When does that come out? That'll be out in October. So, Sweeney... Uh, everything rises and falls on leadership. It always has, it always will. It'll always be a topic of intense interest in our country. And I have uh, enjoyed very much studying leadership in depth and, uh, and writing about it and sharing uh, different leadership thoughts and principles. Can I tell you that I remember... Uh, helping well, you were on doing promotional interviews for one of your books or, or maybe you just came on the radio station this was years ago I still remember you you had joke books you had you know I think it was football college here's here's the, I actually remember one joke that was still in your joke book you ready for this one tell me if you know this one how how many college football players does it take to screw in a light bulb you remember the answer to this one Sweeney, Sweeney, your memory's better than mine. The answer? <laughs> the answer is only one, but he gets three credits for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, for you. that one sticks in my head still. Well, well, Sweeney, let me tell you this. Uh, I am still recovering from an old football injury. Uh, I got it moving my television set, helping the Eagles get better field position. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's perfect. And you you do speaking tours now, too, don't you, Pat? Sweeney, I'm out a great deal. I, I speak in the corporate world, and the athletic world, the church world, etc. In the corporate world, I find that uh, corporate America is interested in three topics, particularly one, leadership, number two, teamwork, and number three, winning, extreme winning. And, and, uh, and what that takes. Those are the three main topics that I'm finding uh, the corporate world is interested in. So I'm, uh, I'm still out there and enjoy that part of my life very much. I find that speaking and writing books goes together. Uh, they, they kind of feed off each other. Um, and so I'm going to continue to do that for many years ahead. I hope so. And listen, I hope you uh, find your way to Yankee Stadium one day so I can... Uh, I can show you around here and, uh, and and show you what a fine place this is and maybe take in a game with you. Well, Sweeney, one of my closest friends in sports from my Phillies days is Bob Boone. Ah. Uh, we've been friends for, oh, I don't know, every bit of uh, 45 years. Wow. And, uh, and uh, I saw the Boone children grow up, you know, as little kids, and it's been fascinating watching them. So I find myself rooting for the Yankees simply because of Aaron Boone. Well, they, you're gonna ha- you're gonna have to come up here and say hi to him personally then sometime. Well, I'm, 
uh, he's a he's a terrific young guy. He's gonna he's gonna be a fine manager in Yankee history. Uh, I've known him since he was a little boy, um, hanging around the ballpark, and I uh, I'm just following the Yankees very very closely. I hope they can get fully healthy. Uh, I think when they are healthy, you know they're gonna be right in the middle of things, and uh, I'm very impressed. I get my New York Post every day. <laughs> And uh, that allows me to keep up with all the latest news and all the latest gossip. Oh, yeah, I can't live without my post. There you and, go. Uh, I'm, I'm pleased with uh, with how the parents handling himself. You know, it's funny. You've probably seen this uh, multiple times. The idea of kids, uh, children of athletes who went on to become successful athletes or, or coaches or managers or whatever, it seems that, yes. that that tree just kind of keeps feeding off itself. Well, listen, you could write a whole encyclopedia on that. Mm. You know, these, these youngsters who are coming along today or the grandchildren coming along. Uh, the Boone tree is, uh, well, it's, it's fascinating. You go yeah. back to Ray Boone, mm. who, who I saw play in Philadelphia when he was in the American League and I was a kid. And then his son, Bob, who I, I saw play for years in Philly. And then the two, the Brad and Aaron, come along. Yeah. Uh, there, there are more Boone grandchildren in the pipeline. It's going to be one, one of them, Jake Boone, who plays at Princeton. Yeah, shortstop at Princeton, right. Yeah, he's, he's a bred son. And, uh, and by the way, there's only one thing that kept me out of Princeton, and that was high school. <laughs> but aside from that, you know, I, uh, I, I'm rooting for Jake. So uh, we're, we're, we're uh, tied to the Boone family. Pat, I can't thank you enough for spending all the time and sharing some great stories with us. I wish you luck in, in, you know, I guess it's not really retirement. It's just a different phase of what you do, and you're still going to be out in public as much as you ever were. You know, I've, I've, got, I've got the freedom now to really do the things that are important to me. And uh, I've got a whole list, legal pad full of stuff that's, that's really important to me. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm diving into it, and I'm uh, excited about all of it. After I stopped recording, Pat told me how in Chicago he worked for a young shipbuilder from Cleveland, who was with the Bulls organization in the early 70s. But then in 1972, he bought the New York Yankees. George Steinbrenner, Pat said, was a hard man to work for. But once he left to run the Yankees, George was a pleasure to be around. And as Pat talks about leadership, Steinbrenner is certainly one of the models of leadership to have come through his life. To check out the latest on what Pat Williams is writing and learn about his corporate speaking engagements, go to patwilliamsspeaking.com. I'll end with this. In 1995, I went to Orlando with Mike and the Mad Dog as their producer. We were covering Game 2 of the NBA Finals in Orlando. I was 25 years old, and as we got to the arena, I had no credential and no seat for the game, but WFAN had pull, and Mike and the Mad Dog had pull. And By the time I got to the arena for the show, I had a credential waiting for me, for the NBA showcase event, the finals, no problem. As for the seat, that was still kind of an issue until Pat Williams showed up. I don't even remember how it came up in conversation that day, actually. I was standing off to the side as Pat did his spot with Mike and Mad Dog uh, on their show that day. And after it was over, somehow the topic of me and my lack of a seat came up. And Pat said, just come stand next to me. I watched the game from the tunnel over there behind the scorer's table. Just stand next to me and no one will bother you. Pat Williams was the president and general manager of the team playing in the NBA Finals, and I was a 25-year-old substitute producer with absolutely no cred whatsoever. And Pat was there to take care of me, just like that. 
I walked around the arena that night, found an open seat in the press area, but Pat's gesture is something I still remember 24 years later. I told him that story the day before we taped this and thanked him for his generosity and kindness to me. He thanked me for bringing back memories of a great time in his life and his career. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Pat Williams. Thank you all for listening. See you next time on the next 30 with Murdy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.